Army, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North honors America's heroes. Rock Positano celebrates baseball great Joe DiMaggio. And Keith and Kristen Getty perform. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now. Thank you, everyone, and welcome to our show from Hendersonville, just north of Nashville. Now, we begin tonight with some sad news from our own neighborhood. This past week, the Nashville area was hit and hit hard by a brutal tornado that killed 25 people, destroyed hundreds of homes and businesses, and left thousands of people homeless. One of the hardest hit communities was Cookville, Tennessee, which is hometown of our own Keith Bilbrey. Our theater and studios are located just north of downtown in Hendersonville. All of our facilities and our staff and team were largely outside the path of the tornado, as well as the wrath of the storm. But the families of those who perished in the storm need our prayers, and all of the victims need our help. President Trump came to Nashville on Friday to join with Governor Lee to view firsthand the damage, to console the victims, and to promise to send federal assistance in the rebuilding effort. Also, our friends at Samaritan's Purse have already been on the scene and they'll continue to be as they help. They and other relief organizations uh, provide a reliable way to give, knowing that the funds that people give are actually going to be used to help the victims. Now, we've also been affected by the coronavirus, not because most of us have it or will get it, but because there's a worldwide panic about it. I'm in no way minimizing the serious nature of any type of flu, and this one is frightening because it appears to spread rapidly. No vaccine is developed yet to stop its spread, although Israeli scientists say they're just days away from finding one. Here in the U.S., there are less than 250 cases that have been confirmed so far. Less than 20 people have died. Now, that's a lot, but keep in mind, there are 330 million people in our country and that the regular flu has already this year, just this year, affected about a million people, and over 12,000 have died from it. Now, we've all heard the common sense advice about preventing it. Wash your hands vigorously and often. Keep hands away from your face, and especially from Trey's face. I would certainly advise that. <laughs> and probably best to avoid shaking hands and maybe just wave or do an elbow bump or a foot bump. Or if you're Joe Biden, just sniff the hair of other people without actually touching it. Do that. That may get edited out, I don't know, we'll see. Let's also mention that the field of Democrats in the 2020 presidential race has dramatically dropped with only Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Tulsi Gabbard still in. Now, you probably haven't even heard that Tulsi is still in because for reasons that I've never understood, the Democrat Party seems to be intent on keeping her off the stage and totally out of sight. They've manipulated the rules to keep her off the debate stage, and many of the commentators even lament there are no women left in the race. 
which I think must come as a real surprise to Tulsi, who at last report has not transgendered. <laughs> Suddenly, the party that prides itself on diversity is left with two elderly white guys, the youngest of whom is 77 years old, and they got one female that they insist on keeping out of sight and out of mind. I'm telling you, it's easier to find the body of Jimmy Hoffa than to find Tulsi Gabbard <laughs> at a Democrat Party function. Well, one of the comforting takeaways from the recent reduction of the Democrats in the race is that despite big money still being more important in politics than good policies and ideas, not even Mike Bloomberg could buy the White House. Yeah. And boy, did he ever try. I mean, the guy spent almost $600 million and only won in American Samoa. As a consolation prize, the Girl Scouts gave him a case of their Samoa cookies. <laughs> you know, Bloomberg burned so much money that environmentalists now blame him for global warming. <laughs> and TV and radio stations and online advertisers, they're crying. I mean, he pretty much individually funded them for a year. But I'll tell you, it's good news for those who can now watch their cat videos on YouTube without first having to suffer through a Mike will get it done ad. <laughs> yeah, Mike got it done all right. He's down and done. And all he keeps is a T-shirt that says, I spent $600 million and all I got was this T-shirt <laughs> in extra small. <laughs> yep, Bloomberg came up short. <laughs> well, my first guest tonight is a decorated war hero. He's a historian and best-selling author. He's got a brand new book. It's a historical thriller, a story of heroism in our nation's first war, the war that birthed the United States of America and freed us from tyranny and oppression. And he says our country may be under threat yet again. Please welcome a dear friend, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you again. You know, one of the things that you're a known for, a strong defender of the Second Amendment, it's uh, been a big part of your message in life yeah. for a long time. That's not just about hunting and gun ownership. Why should a non-gun-owning American even care if there is a Second Amendment? But let me give you some shameless self-promotion because the cover of this, <laughs> the cover, thank you. Yeah. The cover of this is, a, is, this is a flintlock rifle that Daniel Morgan led a hundred of his fellow Virginians to Washington, to Washington's headquarters up in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1775, not 76. America would not have won the revolution had everyone in America not had a firearm. Hmm. And it didn't matter even if you lived in Boston or you lived in the periphery of the frontier out in northern Virginia and southwestern Virginia, it didn't matter. You had a firearm, and the British knew it. And the fact that we won the revolution goes all the way back to the origin of the Second Amendment because everybody looked at it and said, that's a great way to protect yourself against tyranny. Hmm. It has nothing to do with hunting. Yeah. It has everything to do with protecting your family and yourself against tyranny. And that's why I started this book, because... Uh, there's, there's so few people who understand that anymore. 
I'm deeply concerned that so few people know about why we became a great nation. No other country began with the idea of we the people governing. Yeah. Very first time it ever happened. The idea of revolution isn't simply speaking the right words. It's having the right concepts, the ideas, biblically. And, and this book documents the times people say, well, they, they, at the very most, they might have been deists. They weren't deists. Mm -hmm. The words Jesus Christ appear in almost all of their conversations. And the ideas yeah. out of that book. Yeah. The Rifleman, the book that you're uh, just releasing, it, it, it's based on the, the true story of the revolution, yeah. but it's well, I made a novel. novel. I, so I, I did. I, I created a protagonist in there who's able to take the story all the way through because I've read all, this, all the original documents and the, and the kinds of things that were written by historians. It put y'all asleep. So I, <laughs> I, I, I created a character who is in this book, in this volume, he's an adjutant for, hmm. for, for Morgan, and he's in on these conversations, and he can add color to it, which you can't really do. But it's... The historical facts are right there in this book to include the disaster that this, this book actually ends on. Can we survive as a nation if we don't give kids an understanding of who they are and what our history is? I, I don't have the gift of prophecy, Governor, but I tell you, I, I look at it. The good Lord blessed us with 18 grandkids. 18? 18, and they all live in Virginia now. I feel like a piker now. I only uh, got uh, six. So. Uh, well, all right, kids, I, get I, busy. I, Come on. Kind of reminds me of my, when Betsy was pregnant with our fourth, our, my grandmother, who I, we lived with when I was growing up, Betsy was pregnant with our fourth, and she went, was in the hospital, and Betsy walked in the door and she said, are you pregnant again, dear? My grandmother had six kids. And she, she, Betsy said, well, I'm pregnant. She, you do know what's causing this, don't you? <laughs> and now that I'm old enough, all the filters are gone, so I can say things like that in front of the kids. So we play a game around the kitchen table and say, What's the most fun you've ever had? And they go around and we climbed this mountain and we did this <laughs> event and we set this new record of doing. Most fun I've ever had? Your mother. Go, oh my God. <laughs> it's true. How do you think you got here, kids? <laughs> where was this conversation? I'm sorry. We'll... <laughs> we were talking about Jesus, yeah, I think. Well... And where we went from there, I, I, I just don't even know. <laughs> well... That's in here, too, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's in there, too. Yeah. You are also working on the project that I find very fascinating because it really ties in with what you're doing in your book and what we're talking about in yeah. Americans Not Knowing Their History. It's a project about American heroes. We've got a little clip. It's just sort of a teaser uh, that we're going to take a look at and talk about. I'm concerned people have lost sight of character, integrity, courage, and honor, and instead worship celebrity. I'm concerned they revere a uniform with numbers, but disrespect a uniform with a badge. I'm concerned, and we're doing something about it. These are heroic Americans who walk among us, people who put themselves at risk for the benefit of others. They woke one morning unaware that that day they'd be confronted with a moment that required a hero. And they took action. It has been my great blessing to have spent most of my life in the company of heroes. I think that is an exciting concept. You said something in that trailer that 
totally got my attention. We emulate a lot of people who are wearing shirts with numbers on them, yeah. athletes, sure. and hold them up as if they're heroes. Oliver North has two purple hearts, bronze star. It's not like you didn't go into combat and fight for this country and take bullets for the rest of us. So if we're talking heroes, yeah. can we name Oliver North as one of them as well? Because you are, sir. You are. My, thank you. My, my, my true blessing has been able to spend my life with people like that. Mm -hmm. I love to write about him. I had 17 great years at Fox when you and I were there. At, and and that's what I 60 plus embeds that I did with those guys. I had a great opportunity to lead young Marines in combat and to spend 22 years in the Marine Corps and ended up with uh, enormous admiration for the country that will produce an all-volunteer force. This was an all-volunteer force, yeah. right? Yeah. Everyone was a volunteer. Nobody got drafted. But it's a, it's a great thing that we learn about who has given us our freedom. And I think, Colonel, that one of the reasons I'm so grateful to have you here is because, uh, not just because you've written a fantastic book that will inspire and encourage and remind us of our heritage as Americans, but I also think it's important that when you talk about heroes, you talk about the people that you know, and uh, takes one to know one. Well, That's why I'm delighted to have you here. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. Delighted to, delighted to have you here. You. We're going to keep you here for a second. Our thanks to Colonel Oliver North for joining us. The book is called The Rifleman. It's available right now everywhere books are sold. And you can also uh, follow him online at OliverNorth.com, on social media at Oliver L. North. Now, join me after the show on Huckabee.tv. You can learn my thoughts on the coronavirus, hear how transgender teens are pushing back on gender reassignment from the government, and learn why Nikita Khrushchev may have been a political prophet. All of that is on a feature we call Facts of the Matter, and you can only see it after the show on Huckabee.tv. Keith, we're going to let you do a little sharpshooting on what we got on the show tonight. Tell us about it. Oh, I think I can hit the bullseye tonight. Congressman French Hill, Dr. Rock Positano, and columnist Cal Thomas are right here. Plus, Irish vocal duo The Gettys, right here on Huckabee. Well, this week, Middle Tennessee was struck with tornadoes that reached speeds of 175 miles an hour and above. Several hundred homes and businesses damaged and destroyed, and that doesn't even include the surrounding towns in Putnam County. Samaritan's Purse is working to help in every area they can. I hope you'll consider volunteering to help the families and individuals who have been displaced, as well as those injured in these storms. And if you can't get here, then pray and please give the most generous financial gift you can that'll meet the needs of others through Samaritan's Purse. You can call or go to their website today and lend a helping hand in the name of Christ. Well, try to imagine a Congress member who actually understands economics. You think there's not one? Well, there is. I got one for you. He's a former commercial banker, investment manager. He's now ranking member of the House Subcommittee on National Security, International Development, and Monetary Policy. He was also an official in the Bush administration of George Bush 41 in the Treasury Department. Please welcome back to our show, Arkansas Congressman French Hill. French, Thank you, Mike. welcome. Good Great having you. you back. Thank you. Good to be back. 
full disclosure, you and I have been friends for a long time. We've duck hunted together in the duck woods of Arkansas. Uh, but tonight, I'm talking to the congressman, not just my friend. Uh, the coronavirus certainly has everybody in a froth. What do we need to know? You, you get briefings on national security and issues like this that the rest of us aren't going to get. So what, what would you like to say to the constituents of America uh, to help them with the, the concerns and the panics? We met with Vice President Pence this week and Tony Fauci, who runs the infectious disease operation at NIH, and they concur with the recommendations you gave all your viewers tonight. We've got to use common sense. We've got to not overreact, and we've got to be prepared, but not be frozen in action. And I think that's where we are in the United States. I know that we need to be prepared. And let me say that President Trump jumped on this immediately when it broke in China. On January 10th, the Chinese finally gave us the formula of what they thought was causing this disease. That triggered our work towards a vaccine. Our public health system here is the best in the world. So we've had the move of the Federal Reserve. We've had Congress act immediately and appropriate $7.8 billion to help offset the expenses potentially around the infections from coronavirus. And we've gotten the public health departments around the whole country coordinating with the direction of Vice President Pence. Economics is your bailiwick. This certainly could have a big impact on the economy, uh, particularly the travel industry, a lot of flights being canceled, people afraid to go on cruises, afraid to go to yep. uh, large events. NCAA is talking about having March Madness without a crowd there in an empty uh, arena. So if there's this kind of economic impact, will we recover from that in, in the foreseeable future? Of course we'll recover, but that's what you see in the stock market. That's why you saw the actions of the Federal Reserve, the uncertainty, the unknown. We see that in Wuhan, uh, China, as we taped this show, that there were no new cases uh, found. That's good. Yeah. If that number is to be uh, believed, that's a good thing. So we will recover, but it's gonna have an in, in, uh, inter, international economic impact, which is why the Fed, I think, had an insurance policy by cutting rates this week. You've seen the stock market's reactions because they don't know the future. Yeah. We had a great jobs report this week, but that's about the past, not the future. So uh, again, preparedness is important. We've talked about this before, but I wanna go back to the fact that the cutting of taxes in the first year of the president's uh, uh, year as president and deregulating, cutting seven regulations for every regulation that has right. been enacted. Why does that have any impact on the economy? Or does it have an impact? And if so, why? Well, during the Obama years, I think we all came out of the recover very slowly. We were not creating jobs. It was very slow. It was a wet blanket over the economy. And what President Trump did was open up that economy, increasing freedom for being able to form a business, hire people, innovate an idea by reducing regulations, making the tax system more competitive, make America have incentive to bring uh, capital back to the United States to open up new businesses. So that's why the economy has been doing so well. We have a 50-year low in unemployment rate. We had an outstanding jobs report this week. So we go into this crisis, this uncertainty, in a very strong position of high income, low unemployment, and good economic growth. We've talked China. Let's talk Iran. The president's been tough on him. He's kept the sanctions on and uh, put a lot of economic pressure on them. How does that affect our ability to deal with Iran from a position of strength? Is that the right strategy? Or should he go back to the Obama model, which was to send them pallets of cash and ease up on them 
which which approach from an economic standpoint, strictly right. economic, works best? Well, America is the largest producer of energy now in the world. It's mm. a different world than 1979 uh, during the hostage crisis. President Trump's right to be strong against Iran. Iran is the most malevolent actor in the Middle East, threatening our great ally in the Middle East, Israel, uh, disrupting uh, Saudi Arabian audio, uh, oil patterns. And so President Trump's been tough. And by being tough and getting out of the agreement with Iran, the Obama agreement, the JCPOA, now Germany, France, and England are with us. So that snapback sanctions, I think, will be the next step on Iran. And I want to thank President Trump in front of this audience for ending Soleimani, who was mm -hmm. absolutely one of the worst terrorists in this world. Yeah. yeah, I don't think the world misses him. Because of all of the talk today, Bernie has been putting forth, and others as well. What is it with people embracing socialism? Why should that concern Americans? And why should we be alarmed that younger Americans actually think it might be a better system of economics than capitalism? Well, I think all of us that have uh, children and all of us who are teachers and all of us who are professors have let down our country to have a new generation that would tolerate thinking that socialism is better than capitalism. Free market capitalism has freed billions from poverty uh, and from the horrors of the world. And that's been through leadership of the United States. Well, great to have you back. It's great to be with you. Please come again. You we bet. love having you. It's, it's always nice to talk to somebody in Congress that we can talk economics with who makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of the time, every month when the job numbers come out, the news reports, economists are surprised, and I, I've come to realize economists are always surprised. <laughs> I like it when I have a congressman that's not surprised about the way the economy's going. <laughs> and to keep up with all the latest news from Congressman French Hill, you can visit his website, hill.house.gov. Also, follow him on social media. Just look for at Rep French Hill. That's on Facebook, Twitter, as well as Instagram. Now, Keith may not be an economist, but he's got the latest news on the rest of the show, and he is going to socialize with us and share it right now. Well, coming up next, Dr. Rock Positano talks Joe DiMaggio, Cal Thomas reveals America's expiration date, and modern hymn writers Keith and Kristen Getty. They're on Huckabee. The Cowsills celebrate Mr. Rogers and comedian Tom McDiarmid performs. Well, from the many faces of Vladimir Putin to a festival of exploding sledgehammers, I'm not making that up, we've got the news that'll make you a comrade colluder on a segment we call In Case You Missed It. Everyone knows the power of Thor's hammer, but what about St. John the Baptist hammer? The folks down in one Mexican town are too familiar with it. Over 6,000 people attended and dozens of people were actually injured recently at the annual Exploding Hammer Festival, there really is such a thing, <laughs> in San Juan de la Vega, Mexico. The festival takes place every February and it's dedicated for reasons that do not make any sense to me to St. John the Baptist. 
The event involves people attaching a mix of sulfur and chlorate to the ends of sledgehammers. Then they smash the hammers against a rail beam, making the substance explode and sending up massive clouds of smoke. Some participants are flung backwards by the force it causes. This year, a total of 43 people were hurt. Over a hundred policemen. This cannot be real. There's no way this is real. I'm, I'm telling you, if Alcohol you wonder, Alcohol could have been involved. I'm pretty sure that the bottom statement of the news story is, it was believed that alcohol was involved. I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Has to be. Over 100 policemen oversee the event, and ambulances are standing by at all times. By the way, rumor has it that one con uh, contestant lost a hand and a leg in an explosion with only his right ones remaining. I bet he felt left out. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I can't believe this has anything to do with John the Baptist. I'd believe you without a doubt that if you told me it was to remember maybe Napoleon blown apart. Oh. Hey, at least this wasn't as bad as the explosion at the Charmin toilet paper plant in Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah, nobody was killed, but there was extensive soft tissue damage. All right, finally tonight, I thought it might be nice to look at the life of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now, while he's seen by many as an oligarch who controls Russia, perhaps looking at the chapters of his life will give us a, a fresh perspective. For instance, when he said that his wife had their first child, he became Dadimir Putin. <laughs> and then there was that time he watched an episode of This Is Us, and he turned into Sadimir Putin. <laughs> Or when President Donald Trump said Russian vodka was just potatoes gone bad, he became Madimir. <laughs> and when they started selling a limited edition flavor of Jell-O Instant Putin, <laughs> and when he learned that Bernie Sanders was doing well in the 2020 primaries, and he became Vladimir Putin. <laughs> now, does that affect your view of him as a controlling oligarch? Nope. And we did the entire segment without him shirtless. Well, oops, we almost did it. <laughs> well, just like Elizabeth Warren in a primary race, we got to get out of here. But always remember, we read the news. Now, you know my next guest is Dr. Rock. He's a specialist in foot disorders, often quoted in sports media. It was through that experience that he met and became very close friends with baseball legend Joe DiMaggio. It's a story that's told in his revealing book, Dinner with DiMaggio. Please welcome Dr. Rock Positano. Dr. Rock, great Thank having you here. Thank you. So, you know, I was at the White House visiting with Larry Kudlow, who's the president's economic advisor. He said, there's a guy you got to have on your show, as Larry would say. <laughs> and he told me about your book, and it sounded so fascinating. And I said, you know, I would love to have Dr. Rock on. And it's took, uh, it took a while to get it all worked out, but I'm so happy to have you here because this is an incredible story. How did you meet and get to know and become so close to Joe DiMaggio? I was very friendly with a fellow by the name of Bill Gallup from the New York Daily News, who was a unbelievable cartoonist. And he says to me, you know, Rock, I'm gonna have a friend of mine call you. I think you could help him. I said, well, 
who's your friend? He goes, well, I'm not going to tell you his name because he's very private. I says, well, okay, just make sure you give me the heads up. Yeah. So he calls me the next day. I go, Rock, his name is Joe DiMaggio. I says, the Joe DiMaggio? He yeah. goes, yes. So I figured, this, you got to be kidding me. This is, can't be. So he says, just leave him a little note in his mailbox saying who you are and see what happens. So I figured he would never show up, but Joe DiMaggio is going to show up to my office. So about 7.30 that night, I'll never forget this, the bell rings and the receptionist says, Dr. Positano, you're not going to believe this. I think Joe DiMaggio is ringing our doorbell. And at that time, we had a video system. And I looked at this man. I said, oh, my goodness, it was Joe D. Impeccably dressed, overcoat, not perfect. I mean, hair quaffed perfectly. I could not believe it. And I went out there, and, of course, I introduced myself because I had heard he was a very formal man. You didn't go and say, I'm sorry, we're closed. Can you come back tomorrow? Absolutely not. Okay, I said, good. We did it. not do that. Yeah. And what happened was basically, you know, he introduced himself as being, I'm Mr. DiMaggio. I said, okay. Yeah. And I said, I'm Rock Positano. Now, people said, how long did it take before he let you call him Joe? And I said, about two years. Because <laughs> he was a formality. But yeah. He was a great guy, though. So you guys, though, it, it, it went from doctor-patient relationship to personal friendship. You would go to dinner with him, like, regularly, all the time. Why? How did that happen? Well, look, I think the big thing was that he, he liked that we had respect for his privacy. Of yeah. course, that was his biggest thing, you know. And Joe always knew that I never asked him questions. I never asked him questions about, obviously, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. I never asked him about his relationship with Frank Sinatra. And, of course, I really never asked him any questions about his relationship with the Kennedys. And I think that was a big thing, because I think everybody was fascinated with those three particular topics. Sure. And I knew better. So Gallo says, whatever you do, Rock, don't mention any of those topics, and he'll love you. And that's exactly what I did. I followed Bill's advice. Did he ever open up about any of those topics later in your relationship of many well, years? he always would say to me, he goes, you know, Doc, I don't understand how all of these people are writing books about me and articles about me when they never even sat down and had a cup of coffee with me, which was mm. kind of very profound yeah, it is. in his own way. But he took a liking. He loved New York City. And, of course, the Dinner with DiMaggio book is really a snapshot of the last nine years of DiMaggio's life in New York City when he was actually able to enjoy himself. So we were all over town with him. I mean, he loved restaurants, and it was amazing how here's a man that was, at that time, 70s, no, beginning of his 80s, and people gravitated toward him. I mean... We used to kid around. I mean, you wanted to go to a restaurant and have people attracted, bring Joe in. And you'd have all of these younger people. It didn't matter. They were 25, they were 35, and he had that allure. But he was a gentleman. And, of course, women loved him because he was a gentleman. Yeah. I mean, women would just fall in love with DiMaggio. And I could see why Marilyn Monroe would do the same thing as well. You know, there was uh, extraordinary stories about how smart he was, how perceptive, that he wasn't just some dumb jock. This guy was a man of extraordinary intelligence. This man was brilliant. He would read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Daily News, the Post, cover to cover every day, because he wanted to be informed. Hmm. But of course, what really I admired about him is that he knew all industries. He knew entertainment. He knew business. He knew the film industry. I mean, he knew everything. And many times I would watch people from these various disciplines try to, like, impress him, and he would beat them to the punch. And I used to sit there and say, oh, my goodness, this guy was just amazing. And, of course, he always said, he always said this, Governor, that more baseball games were won and lost off the field than on the field. What did he mean by that? He meant to say that baseball was a thinking person's game and that 
Mental errors were probably the biggest reason why some of the biggest games were lost. When, and I guess that's the reason why DiMaggio and even Williams were so brilliant, because they would actually remember pitching combinations that were from three years before, where there was a man on first and second, and it'd be two outs, and DiMaggio says, I'm going to wait for the curveball. And they, the, him and Williams would actually remember pitching combinations. Now, you went with DiMaggio and Ted Williams at dinners the two of them, that must have been an extraordinary conversation. They were not known to like each other very much. It was also a very dangerous one, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, having the two most, like, preeminent baseball players ever. I mean, you know, DiMaggio always recognized uh, Williams as being the greatest natural hitter ever. Yeah. And Ted always recognized Joe as being the greatest all-around, you know, player ever. But it was amazing when they would get together. I mean, they would just... Throw really competitive? Oh, still competitive, 50-something years later. So much to the point that one night when Ted was feeling his oats, he said to me, you know, Rock, the way to get Joe out is to throw this particular pitch. And, of course, what's happening, Governor, I'm watching the Maggio's ear steam up. And finally, after a few minutes, Joe turns to me and to Ted and says, Ted points to his ring finger. He goes, you see that? That's a 1936 World Series ring. He goes, I've got nine of them, and you've got none of them. <laughs> <laughs> what a shutdown, huh? Oh, oh I boy. Mean, he was amazing, Governor. He really was amazing. I mean, he was so smart. You know, this book is going to be a wonderful read for people <laughs> who love the era of Joe DiMaggio and the legend of this man. They're going to get a back-behind-the-scene view of him that they've never known before. You actually knew him, became his friend, and give us some great insights. You can learn more at dinnerwithdimaggio.com. And to learn more about the author, visit rockpositano.nyc. Now, with all that talk about dinner, my guess is that Keith Bilbrey is hungry for a little more show. So, Keith, go ahead and tell us what's up. Next, author Cal Thomas checks America's expiration date. And Irish vocal duo Keith and Kristen Getty join us on Huckabee. and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. And welcome back. Would you give a big hand to Trey Corley and the Music City Connection? Yes, indeed. Well, Ben Franklin said the founders were giving us a republic if you can keep it. My next guest asked if our nation's expiration date may be near. Would you welcome a leading American columnist, commentator, and author, Mr. Cal Thomas. Cal, welcome. Thank you, sir. Good to have you here. Be with you. There we go. There you go. Thank you, Mike. Brand new book, America's mm -hmm. Expiration yeah. Date. That's frightening to me, Cal. It sounds like we're on our way out. Well, as you uh, discussed with Ollie North, there is a pattern to history, Mike. And uh, it's no, not just a cliche that the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from it. I've looked at eight empires here. The book is uh, based on an essay by the late British diplomat Sir John Glove, who studied 3,000 years of human history and found that there's a pattern to the decline of nations. Number one, massive national debt. We're $23 trillion mm -hmm. in debt and counting. Military overreach. The president, to his credit, is trying to pull back on some of that and asking other nations to pony up some money to, for their own defense. Uh, a loss of a sense of God, a collective moral sense. 
Pew Research, as you know, uh, survey millennials found 20% of them said they have no religious preference at mm. all. So uh, I look at all of these, uh, Persia and Spanish Empire, Russia before the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, uh, and, you, and Rome, of course, and you find on the same pattern. And then the last chapter on the United States suggests that we are on the same road and there's really nothing, no guarantee to, that we're going to preserve and persevere as a nation if we follow the same patterns of these other empires. I mean, it sounds pretty, uh, pretty dire. Is there, a, is there a pathway out of this? Yeah. I mean, can we be the exception? Yeah, we can. Well, it's not gonna be a Broadway musical. It's a serious book. Uh, and, but it is, it, you know, the Old Testament prophets were kind of dark about their prophecies for nations and individuals who forget God. Now, Lincoln said uh, that the major cause of the Civil War is that we forgot God. Mm. Solzhenitsyn said the only reason that Soviet communism prevailed for seven decades is that we forgot God. Moses warned against it, Jesus warned against it, the scriptures are full of warnings of what happens to individuals and nations who forget God. Now, my view is that we need to care for the next generation and the one to follow. And the way we do that, in my opinion, is to stop putting them in these re-education camps. Hmm. The public schools, not all of them, but many of them, that teach we evolve from slime and our nearest relative is down at the zoo. That's why we <laughs> like bananas on our cereal. Uh, you know, uh, we need to stop sending them to these universities where, where professors are trained to, uh, to undermine their faith, undermine the values of their parents, and they're actually getting paid to do this. Our Declaration of Independence is the philosophical foundation of the Constitution. We're created, we didn't evolve. Equal, endowed, mm -hmm not by government, but by our creator with certain unalienable rights, right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And then in the next clause, Mr. Jefferson outlines the purpose of government. And to secure these rights, he wrote, governments are instituted among men. Well, why is that necessary? Because as James Madison said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Hmm. People are sinners and we have to be constrained from within by the presence and power of God or restrained by the state acting under God, a very important distinction, because without that, you have a dictatorship. And, and so that was the whole purpose and premise of government. But as we move away from that, we put ourselves in great jeopardy along with these other empires I write about. If there is anyone watching what you've just said and they don't want to get this book, <laughs> uh, they've turned to the wrong channel. I mean, they, they, they must be here by accident because, I mean, it's an intriguing reminder that what has held our country together has been a common thread of faith yes. and that without it, we begin to unravel. Well, so many wrote about this and spoke about it. George Washington, Madison, all of these people. Uh, unless you have a transcendent purpose, not only for your life, beyond getting up in the morning, going to work, making money, paying bills, buying stuff, and renting uh, a storage unit for the overflow, uh, <laughs> if you don't have a transcendent purpose, what's the point? As uh, Peggy Lee sang years ago, I'm dating myself, I know, which in high school was the only option I had. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, is that all there is to life? If that's all there is, let's break out the booze and have a ball. Uh, we got to have a transcendent purpose, and I feel we're losing that as a nation. When you talk about America's expiration date, and I ask you, do you think mm -hmm. we're just destined to be there? You say no, but it doesn't sound like that... Uh, we're on the right path, how do we change it? How does our audience become part of changing this? Well, you know what people say when they're confronted by uh, seemingly impossible circumstances. All I can do 
is pray. Hmm. Now, why do you leave prayer as a last <laughs> resort yeah. instead of a first resource? You know? Yeah. Paul, Paul writes in Romans 8 that God has built futility into his creation in hope that the creation will turn to him. And so I think, you know, like the revivals, two or three people getting together to pray, not just so the stock market will go up, because God responds when you honor him. I have engraved on the back of my watch my favorite verse, 1 Samuel 2.30, he who honors me, I will honor. I believe that with all my heart. Mm. Well, I believe it. I believe this book is one everybody needs to read, America's Expiration Date by Cal Thomas. It's available on Amazon and all major booksellers. You also ought to check out Cal's columns, his commentaries, and a lot more at calthomas.com. You can look for Cal Thomas on Facebook at Cal Thomas. And uh, you can also find him on Twitter. Keith, I don't think we've gone stale quite yet. So if there's anything fresh on our show tonight, we're going to let you tell us about it right oh, now. Oh, you better believe it. Coming up, international worship recording artists Keith and Kristen Getty. Join us right here on Huckabee. Welcome back. My next guests are an Irish husband and wife worship duo. They craft modern day hymns focusing on the passion, death, and life of Jesus Christ. Propelled by Martin Luther's vision to sing, pray, and read the teachings of Jesus, they're leading a whole new style of worship. I want you to welcome Keith and Kristen Getty. Delighted to have you here. How did you guys decide that you wanted to make hymns cool again? Well, gosh, I mean, I think Cal gave, gave you the perfect setup. You know, we live in an age where our culture around us has turned our back on God's. We have four little daughters. And it, when I think about them growing up and surviving, never mind thriving, never mind being world changers like some of the people Cal talked about, we need to build deep believers. And part of that is not only reading the Bible and studying, but part of that is singing it. So we wanted to get people back to singing Christian doctrine, Christian truth in a way that it captured their whole beings. I, I don't want to be disparaging about some of the worship music today, but some of it is, is pretty shallow. And it's very repetitive. And once you've sung four or five words in a phrase, it's just done over and over and over. Uh, the music is very catchy. It's ear candy. But what you really focus upon is a depth a theological depth in the hymns to make it so that there is biblical truth uh, that has meaning to it. It's, it's obviously catching on. I mean, you guys have thousands of people who come to your cons, 15,000 that show up at uh, sing, sing. this year, Sing 2020, yes. right? Yeah. right. Yeah. Bridgestone in Nashville, yeah, you'll yeah. fill that arena. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why is it that people are, are wanting to be a part of this? Gosh, well, I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of it just is, is there's a need. There's a need both for people to get serious about the Bible, uh, to get serious about artistic creativity, and to help our local churches sing. And I mean, it's not just our congregations, and it's not just me, and our, but it's also in our families as well. I think that's where a lot of it sees a big difference, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, no, as we've traveled around, we've met many people in later years of life and maybe they've forgotten a lot of other things, but what they remember are the hymns 
that they learned as children, mm. that they've grown up singing through many different seasons of life. And so we're asking the question, what is it the children today are going to be singing when they're older? And along with all um, contemporary modern music and all different types of music, I think there should be a core, um, a collection of hymns that we can learn when we're little. And we've seen that so much with our little girls. Mm. Even though they are still very small, can learn so much. So the opportunity is so great that we can fill their little minds and hearts with these deep truths in songs that they could sing in their 70s. And so we see it as such a long-term investment in their life. So at Sing 2020, I mean, that's a pretty big arena, you know, to sing hymns. Yeah. What happens at this event? Because it's going to be August the 31st through September the 2nd. If people come to it, what will they experience? Well, it's a mixture of those three things. So we, we teach the Bible. It begins with Kristen's uncle, uh, Professor John Lennox, who you will know of, who introduced us. And we've got Ravi Zacharias, Os Guinness, uh, mm. uh, John MacArthur. Uh, Couldn't get David any big Plant. names, so you... No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all, a bunch of these guys come in and they teach. And this year's theme is singing the scriptures. Yeah. So we're looking at the Bible. We're looking at how the Bible fills our whole services. And then on the third day, we're looking at the Bible's transformative part in the 21st century, really taking on really Cal's theme there. And then we also bring in world-class art musicians from classical musicians to jazz musicians, John Patitucci to, to, to Christian musicians. And then we get worship leaders, music directors. And it's a really sort of a wonderful mixture of them all. So That's gonna be an incredible <laughs> experience for people to get to come. And uh, I hope they will find out about it. Now we didn't bring you here just to talk, so we obviously are gonna have you do some uh, singing for us. I mean, wouldn't We're that be the right thing that. to do? <laughs> I think so. So I'm going to ask Keith to tell the folks at home how they can get the Gettys great music for themselves. Well, Keith and Kristen Gettys' The Life of Christ Quintology, a five-part EP of Modern Hymns, is available at gettymusic.com. You can also find out about uh, more about the Sing 2020 Worship Conference here in Nashville. That's gettymusic.com. And after the show, go to Huckabee.tv for a digital music exclusive performance of What Grace is Mine by Keith and Kristen Getty. But stay tuned because in 60 seconds, Keith and Kristen Getty are going to perform right here. sing in Christ Alone are Keith and Kristen Getty. Thank you. 